God, I thank You for Jake and Allie. Thank You for their willingness to be used. And pray that You bless their ministry. Empower them and, and meet their financial needs. God, we ask You to meet their, their spiritual needs. We pray that for the baby that's in Allie's womb, that You would grow up that child to be a mighty warrior in Your kingdom. We thank You for the truth that we're about to look at. What You want to communicate to us. How Your heart yearns um, that we would know these truths and that we would walk before You as people who are not ashamed of what we know to be true, but that we would embrace it with a boldness such as we've never known before. God, I ask you to prepare our hearts and our minds. Uh, bring our thinking in line with your thinking. Help us to understand your nature and character in a fresh way this morning. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's my understanding as I study God's Word, and, and I've been a, a believer in Christ since I was 14 years of age, God really intends for you to live an abundant life. God, God really intends for you to live life to the absolute fullest. And that's a surprise to a lot of people. Many people think that God's really a killjoy and who's looking to shut us down. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God really wants you to maximize your potential to its fullest. As a matter of fact, when we see God show up in the Old Testament and He gives the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, He follows up the commandments by saying, these things that I'm bringing before you, I'm bringing them before you so that you would know life, so that you would live life to its fullest. Let me show you this on the screen. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is God the Father speaking Himself. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. But why did God have to tell that to God's people? Well, because they'd been living in bondage. They'd been living in captivity. They didn't know what it was to live life. No one in humanity had known what it was to live life to its fullest other than Adam and Eve. And when God said to the garden, in the garden to Adam and Eve, don't disobey me or you will die, you will lose life. They didn't believe him because when Satan showed up and said, you will not surely die, they believed Satan. And they decided to do what he said. And so immediately they experienced death. They experienced physical or spiritual death immediately, physical death ultimately. So life was taken from us at the fall, at, at the murder of humanity. Now Jesus shows up on the scene and he says the exact same things that God the Father says. When Jesus comes in, we find it in the New Testament, John 10.10, he tells us why he came. Look with me on the screen. The thief, meaning speaking of Satan, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, that's God's desire that we would really know life and that we would seize it. I'm going to show you how Paul writes about that this morning as we look at Ephesians 5. So if you have your Bible with you, go to Ephesians chapter 5. If you didn't bring one with you this morning, they're in the pew racks in front of you. We left off last week in verse 15 when it says, wake up, open up your eyes. Do you see what God's provided for you? Make the most of your day. Because the sad reality is 
Most people just drift through their day. And they don't seize it and take full opportunity. And they never really make full advantage of their walk with Christ. So that's what Paul's going to speak to us about this morning. Ephesians 5.15. Remember, he's writing this from prison. This is a guy who's in chains. He says this in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Be careful how you walk. That phrase, the word that's used there is the word blepo. It, it, and it literally means this. Every footstep that you put down, be careful. So if I'm walking on the edge of the platform, I've got to be very, very cautious that I don't fall off and break my ankle. Be careful where you put your footstep. That's how it was used in the first century. So it says, be careful how you walk as wise people. So how do we walk in wisdom? Well, this concept carries the thought of precision and accuracy, meaning see that you walk with exactness. So the opposite is going to be walking carelessly. Somebody who's completely unaware and not properly anticipating what might be in your path. Because Jesus said you're supposed to be constantly on the alert for the attacks of Satan. You see, Paul's building a case towards Ephesians chapter 6 when we start talking about the attacks of Satan and spiritual warfare. Because Satan will put things in our way. That's why Jesus warned in Matthew 7.14, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. Not many people find it is what the verse goes on to say. So when a Christian falls into Satan's traps and they commit sin, they're doing this because they're living as unwise people, not as wise, and they're reverting to the old wisdom of life. So like anything else, you get into this what you put, you get out of this what you put into it, and it requires some really wise decisions on our part. It requires us to be really wise about where we go to church. It requires us to be really wise about who we choose as our friends, who we choose to mentor us. It requires us to be really wise about who we choose to disciple us. Because Paul's saying you've got to be really careful. He goes on to verse 16 saying, make the most of your time. And even in the familiar everyday living, those I've found who are really truly productive have mastered a couple things. They've mastered the use of their day, their day in and day out activities. There's a whole lot of people walking around with what we would call unfinished symphonies. They start something and they can't finish it. So Paul's saying you've got to make the most use of your time because we walk before God the Father and He knows your beginning and He knows your end. God has bound you. He saw when the doctor slapped you on the bottom and you sucked in the first breath of air and your lungs swelled and He sees when your lung will expel the last amount of oxygen. And so we can only find our maximum potential in Him because He's designed our beginning and our end. So God wants us to take full advantage of the opportunities He brings our way. In the first century, there was a statue that was erected in Rome. It was part of the Greek culture. And it was of a man who had wings on his feet and wings on his back. And he was completely bald except for a very long forelock of hair. And there was an inscription at the bottom of the statue. You'll see the quote up on the screen. He was called Cyrus. And, and this is the inscription that was at the bottom of the statue. What is thy name? My name is Opportunity. Why hast thou wings on thy feet, that I may fly away swiftly? Why hast thou a great forelock, 
that men may seize me when I come. Why art thou bald in back, that when I am gone by, none can lay hold of me? See, even in the first century, they had a concept and an understanding of opportunity comes and it's gone in a moment. And if you miss it, that's what Paul's really harping on here because he lived in this century. He lived among the pagan culture. He knew what it was in Ephesus to think like the Greeks. So he uses this phrase, make the most of your time. And I want you to see the Greek word that's associated with it, not because of the word itself, but the definition that goes with it. We use make the most of your time, a long sentence in the English language. They had just one word for it, exagorazo. And it means to ransom or rescue something from loss. Here's how it was used in the first century. When a slave came up on the market who was for sale, and an individual had lost their slave to a debt, or worse yet, they had lost their own child or their wife because of debtor's prison, they could go to the slave market if they had saved enough money up and exercise exagorazo to buy back that which was lost, making the most use of the thing that was for sale. So Paul is writing here, we're to capture, we're supposed to buy up all the time that we have for our use in Christ's kingdom to make maximum potential of it. So he's saying, make the most use of our time immediately after he just told us to walk wise. So walk wise, don't walk like a fool, be careful how you move through life, making the most use of your time. I'm convinced one of the most spiritually foolish things a Christian can do is waste their time and waste their opportunity. That's why Jesus said it's a narrow way, it's a narrow path, so make the most of your time. Take full advantage of every opportunity God brings your way. Here's a reminder from Galatians. It says this in Galatians 6.10. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Good reminder for us. Look with me again at verse 17 then. In Ephesians 5.17 it says, So then, do not be foolish. Anybody here ever met a fool? You're willing to raise your hand about that? You ever met somebody who you would consider foolish? Okay, a few of you have. The rest of you I know have, and you're just not willing to say it. So when we think of the word fool in the English language, immediately what pops in our mind is something like Dumb and Dumber, okay? I'm just going there. It was a movie in the 90s for those that are not old enough, to, old enough to remember it. We think of someone who's kind of unintelligent or irrational in their thinking and, and they're irresponsible. But that's not God's definition of a fool. God's definition of a fool is the one who says there is no God and they live like it. Look with me on the screen at Psalms 14.1. This is God's definition of a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They, God speaking, are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. So by God's own definition, a fool is a person who lives not only apart from God, but they're denying God by their actions as well as their words. See, he says they have committed abominable deeds. It's not just what they say. It's not just what they think. It's their actions. So we're going to say a supreme fool is a person who has an anti-God thinking pattern. Now, most people are going to say to you, I'm not anti-God. I'm not anti-God at all. But their daily living and their actions would prove otherwise. They're really showing that they're anti-God. So ultimately, they become an individual who starts making decisions about their life 
based on their values and their fallen nature. But Scripture says in Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, meaning he's thinking through fallen eyes, and he's trying to determine right and wrong by his own fallen thinking. So what I'm finding from Scripture is the knowledge that the ungodly person really hates is not practical knowledge. They're not stupid. They don't really hate factual knowledge. They hate the knowledge of God. I'll give you an example of that. I've read recently that um, it's been estimated that of man's accumulated knowledge, meaning factual, practical knowledge, if you were to measure it from the beginning of time to 1845, it could be measured by one inch. And if you were to measure man's accumulated knowledge from 1845 to 1945, it could be measured by three inches. And if you were to measure it from 1945 to 1975, it would be the height of the Washington Monument. And if you were to measure it from 1975 to 2005, it would be three times the height of the Washington Monument. Now, would you say from 1975 to 2005 that we have increased in our moral and natural understanding of God or in our understanding of factual things? So what we understand is that the ultimate destiny of a fool is this, according to 2 Timothy 3.7, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth, increasing in factual knowledge, but never really getting to the point where they understand God. Well, my Bible says this in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So look at verse 17 again, because in the last half of it, he says there's something unique about us. We can understand the will of God. If we're going to make the most use of our time, we can understand God's will for our life. I've come to understand this. God does not play a guessing game with you about his will for your life. It's not like we're children on an Easter egg hunt waiting to stumble across a hidden egg. That's not our God. God desires for us to know what we're supposed to know about Him and how to obey His will. So in your notes this morning, if you pull the bulletin out, I've I've listed four reasons why you want to be really accurate in your walk. You'll see them up on the screen as well. And we've got these four reasons to be really careful about how we walk in a day-to-day basis. The first one is because of a mark of wisdom. It's an indication that we have wisdom in our life because fools will drift with wind. They make no plans for the future. Let's put this in financial terms. We plan very, very carefully where to put our investments. If If you're cautious and you're thinking for the future, we're very careful about where to put our money for our investment returns and for our savings accounts. Being really cautious that those things one day would come back to us. So a wise man really marks out his course financially. Uh, guys, you can relate to this one. We, we put a great deal of thinking into our electronic purchases, right? Okay, think big screen TVs, all right? It's been more than once my wife has caught me wandering around at Best Buy just staring at the wall of big screen TVs because we put a lot of thought into that. Now, now transfer your financial planning or your planning for your own home, and let me ask you this self-evaluative question. Does does your walk, your deliberate actions in the kingdom reflect the fact that you give that the same kind of advanced planning? Are you very, very careful about how you walk in the midst of your day walking for the kingdom? That's the first one. The second one is because the days are evil. 
Paul said that himself. The days are evil in verse 16. He's thinking in terms of the first century. And the Roman Empire was beginning to come down like a vice on the Christians. It hadn't happened yet. But at the time that he's writing about it, if you read 1 Peter, you'll see that Peter wrote also at the same time frame. 1 Peter chapter 1 and Paul writing here in Ephesians chapter 5, they began to read the signs on the wall that this emperor, Domitian, and the one that would soon come into power called Nero, would not tolerate Christianity. And they were going to crush the Christians, burning them at the stake, throwing them to the lions, and all manner of things I'm not going to get into right now. So what Paul's telling us here, it's foolish to waste your opportunities of freedom because those very opportunities could be taken away from us by this advancing perverted culture that we're surrounded by. So if that was true in the first century, would that not be true today? Because the days are evil. So number three, also because he's given us an intellect. So number one, because it's a mark of wisdom. Number two, because the days are evil. And number three, because God's given this this intellect. He says in verse 17, understand the will of the Lord. It must be that we can actually understand it. Because God doesn't say something that he doesn't equip you to do. So if you're able to discern the will of God for your life, you have to understand that discovering God's will is not a mystical experience. I've found in my life, this is what's true. You can discover God's will for your life and his plan for your future through his word and through prayer. You can definitely discover God's will for your life by talking to other believers and getting good counsel from those who are wise. But you'll never fail by going to his word and through prayer. That's how you discern the will of God. And if God gave us a mind, he expects us to use it in order to weigh out what his will is and his plan for us. So James 1.5 says that if any one of us lacks wisdom, go to God because he'll give it to you liberally. He won't hold back from it. And here's the fourth one. Because God has a strategy for your life. He really does. He has a purpose. If God saved us, he has a purpose for our life. Think about what you've learned in Ephesians so far. God chose us. God predestined us. God redeemed us. God has given us an inheritance. So therefore, it's very logical that God has a plan for your life. And it's your responsibility to discover what that plan is. And he reveals that through his word and through prayer. But also through the church, through talking through good godly counsel. Now, he makes a bit of a hard shift when we get to verse 18. You're going to say, where does this come from? Look with verse 18. Look with me at verse 18. You'll see it on the screen. And do not get drunk with wine. <laughs> Don't you look at that and go, what? You've just been talking about making these wise choices. Where does this feed into? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Uh, I want to be really clear about this issue of do not get drunk with wine. I was raised in a church setting where there, there were those who do and those who don't, okay? And there was this issue of legalism. So I want to be really clear about what we're talking about here. First of all, drinking and not drinking is, is not a measure of spirituality. So we're just very clear on that. My spiritual position in Christ is determined by what He did for me, not by what I did for Him, correct? Okay, so we're clear on that. It's, it's determined by what He did for me. But what he did for me is reflected in me internally, 
and how I reflect that externally as well in my choices. So Paul's about to use this really familiar image of drunkenness because they're surrounded by pagans who are in party central. I mean, that's what Ephesus was. You think the university you went to was known as being party you? This was party you. Ephesus was party town U.S. well, not USA, party town in the Greek culture. So here's why he's using this really familiar image. Because when you see this image of drunkenness compared to the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, your mind immediately should go back to the first century church and what happened at Pentecost. And if you're not familiar with that, Pentecost was 40 days after Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, poured out with power on planet earth. And people began speaking in tongues of different languages. And the disciples began leading people to Christ in a way that they'd never seen before. So when, when the non-believers were looking at the believers at Pentecost, they see them at nine in the morning and they say, what is up with those people? They're tanked. It's nine in the morning? They're acting like drunks? Well, why is this image used here? Because a drunk is under the control of another force. And a drunk is not ashamed to express themselves. You ever seen a, a drunk person? They don't mind expressing themselves. They'll tell you exactly what they're thinking. And, and a drunk can't hide what's going on in their life. Okay, so Paul's using this image. If you transfer this image to a believer who's been filled with the Spirit, what we're saying here is God controls their life. He's absolutely in control. And they're experiencing a deep joy, and so they're not afraid to express it. That's why he's using this contrast here. So the contrast is the drunk is out of control, so he's saying don't be drunk, don't be filled with wine. The believer experiences self-control. Now remember, they're living in this pagan culture. So the drunk calls attention to themselves, but the spirit-filled believer calls attention to God. That's Paul's reason for using this imagery. So what he says next in verse 18, I want to camp on for just a minute, just so you're really clear, because maybe you've never felt like you're filled with the Spirit. Because we're told in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Now recognize that statement in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, that apart from that statement, Ephesians could appear to be really legalistic. Anybody here grew up in a legalistic church? You understand what that's about? Gary Post was in the Saturday night service and he said, um, in his church when he grew up as a young man, it was a very legalistic setting, that individuals were defined by their walk with God by the things they did not do. That's legalism, okay? It's a, it's a list of do's and don'ts, and you measure your spirituality based on that. Well, that's wrong. And Paul writes a great deal against legalism, but just understand, everything that we've seen building up to this point and what he's saying here could really appear legalistic without that statement, be filled with the Spirit. Because the truth is, attempted on my own, in my own strength, I would continually fall short of the things that he's calling me to do. I can't do it on my own. It's not possible if I had to rely on my own ability. So how do you and how do I translate this stuff into our daily living, especially if we're going to enjoy what God says is heaven on earth? Just let me frame that for you. We're told that we can be filled with the Spirit. 
Now this is the same Holy Spirit that surrounds the throne of God. We're talking revelation type stuff. This is the same Holy Spirit that was present at creation. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Same Spirit at creation. Same Spirit at last days. We're told the Spirit can fill us. How is that possible? Well, it's really important for us to understand a couple things when he says, be filled. Know first, this is God's command. So he expects us to obey. And in the Greek language, this is written in the present tense, meaning it keep on being filled. It's a, a constant flow. Now, this word fill has nothing to do with the contents. It's not as though I have a vase here and I'm going to dump a bunch of water into it until it spills over the brim. As though you and I need some kind of spiritual fuel to be dumped into us. That's not what we're talking about here. When the word filled is used in the New Testament, it's talking about something that is a controlling nature. So you see that in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is about to be murdered by the Pharisees. It's prior to the time when he's going to be crucified, and God doesn't want his death to occur in that way. But what we're told is that the Pharisees are filled with wrath towards Jesus, meaning they're being controlled by their anger. So this word filled, when it's being used in the sense here in, the, in, in Ephesians, it's referring to the fact that we're constantly under the control, our mind, our body, our will, We're under the control of the Holy Spirit. So here's where I want to delineate and be very clear with you. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. At the moment that you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, God's Holy Spirit indwells you. You can't change that. God has claimed you for His own. And you have claim to all of Christ's promises at the moment that you believe. He already indwells you. As a matter of fact, look with me on the screen at Romans 8, 9. It says this, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So it's really clear, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a follower of Jesus. So here's the second component of that, though. To be filled with the Spirit is not the same as being sealed. You can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you can be sealed by the Holy Spirit, but not be filled by the Holy Spirit. Because when you're sealed, we're told that that's an accomplished fact. We looked at Ephesians chapter 1, and it said that you were sealed unto the day of your redemption. Nothing's going to change that. Meaning, nothing can rob you from the grasp of God's hands. It's an accomplished fact. So in the Bible, nowhere are believers commanded to be sealed, and nowhere are believers commanded to be indwelt, because that happened at the moment of salvation. But we are commanded right here to be filled. So being filled with the Holy Spirit is not an option. It's a mandate. So it must be something that you and I play a role in. Now, first of all, understand that a Christian cannot fulfill God's will for their life unless they're filled with the Spirit. If you're not filled with God's Spirit and He doesn't have control, you cannot accomplish His will and His plan for you. So many Christians wonder why they live in spiritual weakness or why they feel frustrated or defeated. 
And it's many times it's because they're not filled with the Spirit. So let's see what he's talking about here. When it says be filled, there's a Greek word that's used very specific, and I know you've just been really waiting for this one to come up. It's in your notes, and it's the word playru. And it, it has this meaning behind it, to make replete. It was used in the first century culture in the fishing economy. And it meant to cram a net so full with fish There was no more room. The nets would be at the breaking point. Well, Paul uses a lot of fishing and a lot of seaside illustrations when he talks because it's part of the economy at this time. But this particular word has a really specific meaning in three ways in this culture. And it would help us to understand what they were thinking when they saw this word playroom. The first way it was used was this. Think of a sailing ship with tall mast and sails. And in port, the sails are down, and it has not yet set out to sea. But as soon as it breaks free of the port, and they put the sails out, the first trade wind that comes along, the sails fill up. That's part of the image of playroom here, in that the wind would carry the ship along. Well, in the same way, the Spirit of God moves among us and carries us along. That's why in Scripture it says in 2 Peter 1.21 that the men of old were filled, they were moved along by the Holy Spirit when they wrote down the things that Jesus said. And the second way that it's used is this idea of permeation. Because when they caught fish out at sea and they brought it back, there's no whirlpool or frigidaire freezer to throw stuff into, right? They just didn't have a way to preserve meat. So they would take salt, and salt would be impressed and embedded into the fibers of the meat. So the Holy Spirit active in our life is to the degree that He permeates everything, embedding deep into the fibers so that everything that we do is reflected with His presence. And in the third way that it's represented in this word playroom, it has the connotation of complete control. So that imagery is what Paul has in his mind when he says, be filled, which means to be totally under the domination of the Holy Spirit. And so that's in direct contrast to the uncontrolled drunk. That's why he's using that imagery saying, don't be filled with wine because it leads to dissipation, which means it's of no value, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So here's the best image I can give you. If I had a glove laying up here on my Bible and somebody had engineered and designed it and manufactured it, laying on my Bible, it's of no value other than it was a nicely designed piece of leather. But at the moment, if that glove represents us, the hand goes into it, which could represent the Holy Spirit. The glove then becomes useful. And the glove is used as a tool according to what the hand determines that it should be used for. And the the glove's only work is the hand's work because the hand controls what it does. That's the imagery behind being filled. So to be filled with the Spirit requires something from you. It requires confession of sin. And sometimes on a daily basis, just to be at that point where you're saying, God, this is what's taking control of my life instead of you. And I just want to surrender it and say, I confess what I did. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? Because I want to be used by you. It requires this also. It requires a surrender of your will. And it requires a surrender of your body and of your time and of your possessions. So the best word I can come up with in association to the word fill is surrender. Just surrender to God. 
Because that's what we said we did at salvation. We recognized we couldn't save ourselves, so we surrendered to Jesus saying, I need your salvation. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And the filling is the work of the Spirit, but it only happens through your submission and how you allow God to work through you. Now, he makes this transition in verse 19. He says, as a result of that, I want you to be singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, this is very interesting because he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but he hasn't said one thing about speaking in tongues. He hasn't said anything about faith that can move mountains. He hasn't said anything about becoming a dynamic speaker or other signs. He says there's a consequence within ourselves if we're walking in the power of the Spirit. And you're going to provide that by singing. Isn't that simple? It's just remarkable that he says, whether you've got a good voice or you can't carry a tune in the bucket, some of you might say, that's me, and I only want to sing in my car or in my shower. Do you notice that he says, making melody in your heart, singing psalms and praises to one another? Well, that's kind of what we did earlier when you were doing Hebrews 13 back and forth. That's as old as the church. The church has done this back and forth responsive because what they're doing is they're speaking about who God is. It's simply a heart that sings because it's so filled with the power of God and the joy that comes along with that. So I want to give you a couple images to take with you this morning that I hope burn in your brain that you can remember this concept of singing and making melody in your heart. And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5 to do that. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but I want you to get this image in your mind because this, this is the last part you're going to hear today. When you open up to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 7, 8, and 9, there's something that's taking place here that hasn't happened previously. We see the four living creatures, and they are amazing. You can read about them in Ezekiel chapter 1, and you can read about them in Revelation chapter 4. These four living creatures that Scripture describes as awesome beings with the form of a man, yet the face of a lion and the face of an eagle and the face of a man. It's just an amazing creature surrounded by six wings, and they are powerful, powerful beings. And we see this in Revelation chapter 5. Look with me at verse 7. It says, And he, meaning Jesus, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, meaning God, who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, you were, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now that's last days. If you back all the way up to the book of Exodus, you find the children of Israel being released from the bondage of Pharaoh. They come out into the wilderness with Moses. And what's the first thing they do in Exodus chapter 5? The first thing they do, they break out into a song to the Lord. Fast forward into the New Testament. Jesus is at the Last Supper. They've just completed breaking the bread, drinking the cup. And Scripture tells us before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus led them in a song. They sang what Scripture says is a humneo, meaning a praise of God the Father. See, because every time God takes action on our behalf, 
We're supposed to respond with music in our heart. Now, Scripture goes one step further. Did you know that Jesus actually, we're told, is going to sing one day in heaven? Sounds cool, doesn't it? So we're going to get to hear Jesus sing. We're told according to Hebrews 2.12 this. It says, I, this is Jesus speaking, I will proclaim your name, meaning God the Father, to my brethren. That's you, the church. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Do you think he's going to need a microphone? I don't think so. I'm thinking his voice is going to be better than Pavarotti because he made Pavarotti. Maybe some of you don't know who that is, so just that's okay. Just think of the best voice you've ever heard. All right, so Jesus is going to sing one day. I can't wait to hear that sound. I think it's going to be really, really powerful. So we're told that even now, when our hearts are filled with joy, when we're filled with God's Spirit and presence upon us, when we're making music, Jesus sings songs of praise through us back to Himself and to God the Father. That we experience an opportunity that has never been experienced by people who are not believers. That we get to sing with hearts full of praise before God the Father. And the Spirit of God fills us to do that. See, when we surrender to the control of God's Spirit and He dominates our life, we find Him producing amazing things through us, entirely of His doing. So we're walking in the Spirit for the purpose of fulfilling the ultimate potential that God sees in our life, to seize every opportunity for the purpose of advancing His kingdom. I'm not going to get into verse 20 today. We're going to get to that next time, but I just want to close with that. I want you to see what it says. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So next time we get together, we're going to be talking about relationships. Men to women, boyfriend to girlfriend, children to parents, because that's where it's really going. But do you notice what he says? Always giving thanks. I started out this morning reminding you, he's in chains when he's writing this. See, the circumstances are not good. And he doesn't say in some things. He doesn't say when things go your way. He says in all things giving thanks. That's part of what music is. Giving thanks back to God for what he's doing in your life. You're going to get a chance to do that because we're going to close with a song. But I'm going to ask you to pray with me first. Would you do that? Father, we bow our heads before you completely out of recognition that you are our king. You are our our dominating force. And you're most of all our savior. God, I, I thank you for this information that you had Paul write down for us today in 2013. And it's as relevant to us now as it was to them. Father, that we could walk as those who are wise and that we could not be identified as people who are foolish because we're taking advantage of every moment for the sake of your kingdom. God, I ask that as we walk before you this week that you allow us to walk in such a way that we seize opportunities for your benefit, that you would accomplish your purposes through us. 
As a redeemed people, God, I ask that you help us to sing with full hearts. Fill our lungs with oxygen. You are worthy of the praise that we give you. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen.